one incident I recall with some pride today, namely that running with me then as president of the board of aldermen was a young Chinese girl. Numerous teachers tried to pressure me to refuse her as a running mate on the grounds that she was Chinese and that had the situation be reversed, this would not happen in China of that day. Welcome to Diversity Dish, where we're dishing on everything diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice related. My name is Sidrola Maruska, and we're bridging the gap between what needs to be said and what needs to be heard. Those individual experiences that are often ignored or simply dismissed. Sometimes I'm dining alone, sometimes I'm dining with friends, and sometimes I'm dining a la carte. No matter how I'm dining, it promises to be delicious. Let's dig in. When my daughter was in the second grade, about seven years old, she came home from school one day, and I'm not sure what transpired, what was going on. My husband asked her to do something. And she countered him. And then she burst into tears. Being frustrated, my husband sent her to her room to cry and do what she was going to do. I looked at that situation and I thought, something's up. Because that's not my daughter. She doesn't react in that way. She doesn't burst into tears for no reason. So I went to her room and I said, are you okay? And she said, yes. And then I said, why are you crying? She said, she didn't know. I don't know, mommy. And I said, well, how was school today? She said, fine. I said, did anything happen at school today? She said, well, I was using something, and I don't remember exactly what it was. She said, I was using something, and this boy came, and he took it from me. And I asked him to give it back, and he wouldn't give it back. And I told the teacher, but she didn't do anything about it. And I said, that was frustrating. She said, yes. I said, did that hurt your feelings? She said, yes. And then she started crying again. And I realized she wasn't crying because of what transpired between her and my husband. She was crying because she had pent up feelings and frustrations about what had happened to her at school. I watched the Oscars on Sunday night. I'm a huge Will Smith fan and I continue to be a huge Will Smith fan. I've seen a number of people go out of their way to analyze the situation, to talk about how he should have known better, how he really screwed up, and how that really looked bad. And, you know, maybe all of those things are true. But you know what else is true and what really resonated with me was the video clip of him having a sidebar conference with Denzel Washington and Tyler Perry, and then watching Bradley Cooper go over to him, talk to him, and give him a hug. 
the thing is, we don't know what transpired truly. We won't really know what transpired. But we do know and we have seen Will Smith time and time again rise above the fray. So to see something like that happen, what happened on Sunday night with the Oscars, and to write him off right away or to attack him right away isn't necessarily what is warranted. What is warranted is to say, wow, that's not like Will. What's going on with him? What's going on there? What's going on with he and Chris Rock? What's going on with he and Jada? Rather than to jump on and pile on, it might be a good idea to say, one incident does not a man make or woman or any person make. And to ask the question, to step back, what I'm asking for is grace. You'll see on my website that I write about grace. I write about giving people space and grace, especially when their actions or their reactions don't fall in line with the person that we know them to be. So instead of looking at a situation going, well, he should have, and he didn't, and he should have known, and he this and that, it would be better to step back, give some grace and say, well, that's not how he has presented himself in the past. I don't believe that that is who he is. What is going on with him? So many times, too many times, as people, as women especially, we're expected to act or react in certain ways. And when we fall short, and especially as marginalized women, black women, when we fall short, when we allow our feelings to come forth and take over, there's always judgment, harsh judgment. So I'm not saying that he should or shouldn't have hit Chris Rock. I don't know what was going on there. I'm just saying that I saw a man who was reacting to something that was not in that moment. So I'm choosing to give him grace. And I start with that because we're going to go into talking about two incredible Black women who may not have been shown grace or who are not being shown grace and who are not able to feel what they feel and go through what they're going through. Hey, thanks for listening. My name is Sidrola Maruska, and I help entrepreneurs and small businesses go from mediocre to magnificent by transforming their cultures to be more equitable and inclusive.
To find out how we can work together, go to diversitydish.com where you'll find my consulting, coaching, and speaker information. Diversitydish.com. I look forward to working with you. Last time, I talked to you about three amazing women. And this past week, the Honorable Katanji Brown Jackson has been in the news so much that I felt that she warranted a space on this badass Black women conversation. Because as I've watched in snippets, because watching the full barrage of questions at her has triggered me in ways that I just cannot begin to express. So I've watched in snippets and I've watched her hold her composure, hold her grace and respectfully respond to not so microaggressions being cut off when she's speaking, being dismissed for the answers that she's giving, and being asked questions that have nothing to do with what her job entails. And when I juxtapose that to the last person to be confirmed and the questions that she received, I'm flabbergasted and disgusted. And so I want to show, I want to talk to you about Katanji Brown Jackson, who she is, and why she is a badass Black woman. Katanji Brown Jackson is a 51-year-old woman who studied government at Harvard University and graduated in 1992. She received a law degree from the same institution, Harvard, in 1996. She was born in Washington, D.C., but she grew up in Florida and graduated from Miami Palmetto Senior High School, a school which is known for quite a few notable alumni but I'm not going to go into their names right now because I'm talking about her. She clerked for three federal jurists, including district court judge in Massachusetts and appellate judge in the First Circuit. Early in her career, she worked as an assistant federal public defender in Washington, D.C., where she worked on appellate cases and served as vice chair of the U.S. Sentencing Commission for several years. As a public defender, she was assigned to represent Guantanamo Bay-related cases. In between her public legal work, she also held a handful of private sector positions. President Barack Obama nominated her for a district court judgeship near the end of his term, and she was confirmed in 2013. She was also interviewed as a potential nominee after the death of Justice Antonin Scalia in 2016. President Biden nominated her to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit in March 2021. As a district court judge, she issued several high-profile rulings, 
In 2019, she ruled against the Trump administration's attempt to shield former White House counsel Don McGahn from testifying before Congress. Some of her rulings were overturned by a higher court, including those on Trump's attempt to fast-track deportations and executive orders constraining government unions' power. She was also the judge who was sentenced who sentenced the Pizzagate conspiracy theorist who shot inside a D.C. restaurant to four years in prison. The Honorable Judge Jackson is married to Patrick Jackson, a surgeon whom she met at Harvard. They have two daughters, Talia and Leela. The Honorable Katanji Brown Jackson has been confirmed by the same panel that she is now facing twice before when she was nominated by President Barack Obama and when she was nominated by President Joe Biden. Her credentials far outweigh those of many of the Supreme Court justices that are currently sitting on the bench. And to watch her have to go through the questioning that she's going through right now is hurtful and harmful. It sets a precedent that depending on the person that is being confirmed, they can be asked whatever comes to mind in whatever way comes to mind. They do not have to be respected. They do not have to be cared for. We don't care about their feelings. We don't care about who they are. We simply care that we can carry out our agenda. Watching her face that with the grace that she is facing, I can put many women's faces, many women in her position and know and understand the strength that it takes for her to keep her emotions in check in order for another to disrespect her. And so I commend Judge Jackson for the strength that she is displaying. But I really and sincerely hope that she has an outlet to release that anger, that frustration, that pain that she is enduring. Because no one should have to endure that type of abuse in order to get any type of position. The Honorable Katanji Brown Jackson is a badass black woman, and I wish her the very best once she gets on the bench as the first black woman in history to be nominated and confirmed to the Supreme Court of the United States of America, the highest court in the land. The next person I want to talk to you about is Claudia Jones. Claudia Jones is an Afro-Caribbean woman born in Port of Spain, British West Indies, Trinidad. She was a communist activist in the U.S., and she holding several responsible positions within the Communist Party and for its publications until her deportation in 1955 to Great Britain. 
There, based in London, she played a leading role in the West Indian community, editing the left-wing West Indian Gazette and founding in 1959 the Caribbean Carnival, a cultural event now attracting some 2 million people every year. I'm going to read to you a letter that she wrote to the CPUSA National Chair, William Z. Foster. It's dated December 6, 1955, the eve, the night before her deportation. The letter is a small part of a file donated to the New York University's Tamament Library by Howard Stretch Johnson, an African-American communist, which also contains a letter from Jones to Johnson, her friend and former lover. Dear Comrade Foster, As a child of eight, I came to the United States from Port of Spain, Trinidad, British West Indies. My mother and father had come to this country two years earlier, in 1922, when their economic status, which were middle-class landowners on my mother's side and hotel owners on my father's side, had been worsened as a result of the drop in the cocoa trade on the world market from the West Indies, which had impoverished the West Indies and the entire Caribbean. Like thousands of West Indian immigrants, they hoped to find their fortunes in America, where gold was to be found on the streets, and they dreamed of rearing their children in a free America. This dream was soon disabused. Together with my three sisters, our family suffered not only the impoverished lot of working-class Native families and the multinational populace, but early learned the special scourge of indignity stemming from Jim Crow national oppression. My formal academic education on American soil began when I entered public school. I have early recollections of being hurt by youngsters of my own age who mouthed anti-West Indian propaganda against me and my sisters. By the time I reached junior high school, I had formed friendships and become integrated in the student body and was nominated in Harriet Beecher Stowe Junior High for the highest office in the school and was subsequently elected mayor. One incident I recall with some pride today, namely that running with me then as president of the board of aldermen was a young Chinese girl. Numerous teachers tried to pressure me to refuse her as a running mate on the grounds that she was Chinese, and that had the situation be reversed, this would not happen in China of that day. I refused to be drawn in or to ascend to any such narrow concept, choosing instead to save her as my running mate. To use the phrase, I exercised my preemptory challenge. We were elected by an overwhelming majority of the students, proving the teachers wrong and showing the internationalist approach of the student body. I began to wonder why there was wealth and poverty, why there was discrimination and segregation, why there was a contradiction between the ideas contained in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, which contained its precepts of the pursuit for all of life, liberty, and happiness. My mother had died two years early of spinal meningitis suddenly 
at her machine in a garment shop. The conditions of non-union organization of that day of speed up plus the lot of working women who are mothers and undoubtedly the weight of immigration to a new land where conditions were far from as promised or anticipated contributed to her early death at age 37. My father, who together with her had come earlier to America, was left to rear four young girls, the oldest of whom was 14. I was the second child of my parents. Because of my pride, I didn't ask friendly teachers to help provide me with a graduation outfit, at which I was to receive high honors, including the Theodore Roosevelt Award for Good Citizenship, and officiate as mayor of the school, choosing instead to stay away sending them some lame excuse why I bawled my eyes out in humiliation and self-pity. I was later to learn that this lot was not just an individual matter, but that millions of working class people and black people suffered this lot under capitalism, if not identical, in one degree or another. Following my graduation from junior high school, I entered Wadley High School, where I was confronted with Jim Crow in the classrooms and in the social life of the school. White kids would borrow notes from me in school, and then on leaving the school would turn their faces the other way under pressure of the Jim Crow society. Teachers with audacity would hold Negro students after school, asking if they wanted to make an extra dollar by doing domestic work for them, or as they not so quaintly put it, whether I wished to wear a pretty white apron at their own social affairs, or they would select poems in dialect and ask Negro kids to read these pointedly. While I even then had, as do other Negro youth, a searing indignation about these things, I didn't know that they were part of a conscious plan designed to perpetuate the national oppression of the Negro people in the U.S., of which these incidents were reflections of the badge of inferiority perpetuated on the Negro people in the North with the more hideous features of lynching, poll taxes, crop lien laws, and economic strangulation devolving on the Negro people in the heartland of the oppression in the Black Belt of the South. My formal academic education in a bourgeoisie sense ended with my graduation from Wadley High School. One year before my graduation, however, in the midst of the Great Depression, where I was one of the so-called lost generation of American youth, I contracted tuberculosis of the lung. My family's economic condition had worsened, as had millions of American families, native and foreign-born, second generation, etc. My dad, who was an editor of an American West Indian newspaper, lost his job. As later, also when he became a furrier, and to guarantee our support, he became a superintendent of an apartment in Harlem, where I lived all my life in the U.S., in the room where I slept, it was later discovered that an open sewerage flowed, and undoubtedly, it was this dampness that contributed to my contraction of tuberculosis. 
I was sent to Seaview Sanatorium from Harlem Hospital at the age of 17, where with pneumothorax treatment for my condition, I fully recovered since fortunately my sputum was never positive. I was there for one full year. There, too, I had an opportunity to read avidly, to think deeply about the social ideas instilled in me by my mother and father. My mother had left the Catholic Church, in which faith we were baptized from early childhood. Choosing to become a Bible student, since her alert mind rejected early the hierarchical teachings of Catholicism. My father's social ideas instilled in us were that of a pride and consciousness of our people, of our relation to Africa, from which my antecedents sprang, to our interrelationship to Caribbean independence, the dream of Sam Simeon, great Caribbean patriot, to the new recognition of the struggle for Negro equality in the U.S., linked indissolubly, as I later learned, with the freedom and equality of the American trade unions and working class as the future class of society. One incident I remember while in Seaview, namely when I gave a blood transfusion voluntarily, since I was her blood type, to a young Italian woman patient. This created quite a stir in the hospital on the question of black blood and white blood. Many of the white patients looked for days to see if the young Italian woman, who was eternally grateful to the point of my embarrassment to me, had turned black. One of the first hospital speeches I ever heard was from a young Jewish doctor who in the midst of this scientific lecture stood in the middle of the ward and gave a lecture to the interracial patients asserting the involability of blood types as the antithesis, antithesis of any false teaching on race. Upon recovery, I completed the last term of high school at Wadley. During my teens, I was active in numerous social clubs in the community, in junior NAACP, in tennis clubs, and also studied dramatics at the Urban League. I performed in this capacity with a troupe in many churches in the Harlem community and in Brooklyn. Upon graduation, I went to work in a factory since college was out for me and I had to help support myself and contribute to the family larder. My first job was in a laundry where I observed under the incredible, to me then, conditions of overwork, speed up, etc. In the heat of summer, young Negro women fainting regularly because of the unbearable conditions. I didn't want to become like them, so I went to work in a factory. But being unskilled, my job was setting nail heads with a toothpick a small jar of paste, and placing these in the nail head setting. Boredom and Inui set in, and I quit this job. Besides, the pay was about $14 a week. Next, I got a job in a Harlem mil millinery store and lingerie shop as a sales girl. This continued for quite a while, about two years or so. These were the years of the Ethiopian War and the invasion of Mongolia. During this period, 1935 to 1936, I worked on a Negro nationalist newspaper. 
Circulation was about four to 5,000 copies, where I wrote a weekly column called Claudia's Comments. My job consisted there also of writing precise summaries of the main editorial comments on Ethiopia from the general commercial press, Negro press, trade union press, etc. To my amazement, on attending one of their meetings of the Nationalists, I saw my boss reading my proceeds to the applause and response of thousands of community people in Harlem, men and women. When the next day he would come in and tell me what a big Negro he was, I would challenge his facts. What he did was to read books on Ethiopia all day and fuse his accumulated knowledge with my proceeds, which were listened to by thousands of people in the mass rallies held by nationalists in Harlem. I spent a lot of time coming from work listening also to the street corner meetings of the various political parties and movements in Harlem. These were the days of the famed Scottsboro Boys frame-up. I was like millions of Negro people and white progressives and people stirred by this heinous frame-up. I was impressed by the communist speakers who explained the reasons for this brutal crime against young Negro boys and who related the Scottsboro case to the struggle of the Ethiopian people against fascism, Mussolini's invasion. Friends of mine who were communists began to have frequent discussions with me. I joined the party in February 1936 and was assigned to work in the Young Communist League shortly after. My first assignment was secretary of the Young Communist League Executive Committee in Harlem and was about this time I got a job in the business department of the Daily Worker. This job coincided with my application for a $150 a week job in the field of dramatics with the Federal Theater Project under WPA. I took the job at the workers for $12 to $15 a week instead. Claudia Jones went on to be elected to the national leadership of the Communist Party and many peace and civil rights organizations. She edited and wrote for numerous publications, including Spotlight, the publication of American Youth for Democracy, and The Daily Worker. She wrote a column on women's issues for The Daily Worker called Half the World. From 1947 to 1952, she wrote that she was active in national women's movements and united front movements, such as Congress of American Women National Council of Negro Women, and she toured the nation, 43 states, in connection with work among the masses of women, particularly working class and Negro women, in struggle against the Korean War for peaceful coexistence between nations for peace, national di dignity, full equality for women, and the equal rights of women, and urging American women, Negro and white, to unite lest their children, like those in Korea, suffer the fate of Hiroshima's atomic destruction. Jones was arrested three times during the McCarthy-era anti-communist witch hunts. She was among the 17 communist leaders arrested in 1951 under the Smith Act, eventually serving nine months in prison in 1955, alongside rebel girl Elizabeth Gurley Flynn. Shortly after her release, she was deported to Britain under the provisions of the McCarran Act.
In Britain, she continued her struggles against racism and for peace, despite the ill health she suffered. Claudia Jones is listed as one of the 100 great Black Britons for her lasting legacy as a founder of the Notting Hill Carnival, which she helped launch in 1959 as an annual showcase for Caribbean talent. The early celebrations were held in halls and were epitomized by the slogan, a people's art is the genesis of their freedom. Claudia Jones died on Christmas Eve in 1964. She was 49 years old. She died due to a heart condition and tuberculosis. She's buried in Highgate Cemetery, famously to the left of Karl Marx. Claudia Jones was an incredible, badass Black woman whom we should all remember because of her work to free people from the oppressions that they were under. She wanted to work with white women. She wanted to work with people to bring about change for all people, mostly for Black people because they were oppressed. It's funny how this, we keep having the same conversations generation in and generation out. It's funny how we have to continuously admonish and continuously call in people to this work because it is such a heavy work and it is so important. The work that Claudia Jones did in her lifetime, in her short 49 years, is incredible. The work that Katanji Brown Jackson has done and will continue to do in her lifetime is incredible. It is incredibly important that we always listen to these voices. There are so many more badass black women that I would love to share with you. And maybe, I don't know, maybe I'll start a series where I share one with you once a week. Just a short excerpt about women who are who made and who are making incredible differences in our world that are so needed. As we close out this Women's History Month, I want you to remember that there are incredible women making differences out there. That as women, we have the power as 50% of the population, we have the power and the responsibility to make this world, to make our communities, to make our states, to make this country incredible, to make it so that our children don't have to grow up with the same oppressions, saying the same things that we are saying, but that they can change it because they have the move forward in the fight. The next time we will get together, it will be something different. We'll go back to our regularly scheduled programming. But I want you to know how grateful I am for all of you who listen faithfully, who share with your communities, who amplify the information that I share, who amplify my guests and who amplify my voice. Because that is the only way to truly get change to happen. Amplification of those voices who are often maligned, those voices who are often 
repressed. Thank you. Thank you so much. It has been an incredible Women's History Month, but let's not forget, we celebrate all year long. Hey, did you enjoy that episode? If so, please leave a review. It would mean the world, but only if it's a good one and you really did enjoy it. In which case, it would be awesome if you help support my work over at patreon.com backslash Cedrola Maruska. And finally, before you go, don't forget diversitydish.com. I'd love to work with you. See you soon.